Hello friends, this is J.B. Hickson with Not By Works Ministries. Due to my travel schedule, we will not be recording our usual midweek podcast this week on how to read and understand the Bible. Instead, we will be posting an archived message on a pretty meaningful topic that I think you'll appreciate. We will return to our series on how to read and understand the Bible next week on Wednesday night, December the 15th. For today's midweek podcast, I'm posting an archived message entitled, For Heaven's Sake, What on Earth Are You Doing? I first gave this message four years ago at a conference in Idaho. In it, I talk about the doctrine of eternal rewards and how we as believers will be rewarded for our faithfulness during this present church age when we get to the kingdom. I hope you enjoy this message, which has never before been heard on our podcast channel. And please reach out to us anytime through our mobile app or online at notbyworks.org if we can ever be of assistance. God bless you. And now, here is, for heaven's sake, what on earth are you doing? Take your Bibles. It's actually Luke 19. Luke 19. But I can see how you might think that's a 10. Luke 19. And uh, I want to talk with you about this idea of sin in the Christian life and this idea of how we are to live out our Christian life as we wait for the Lord's return. Yesterday at the Stealing the Mind conference, I spoke on 10 unmistakable signs that we could be living in the last days of the last days. And uh, so this idea of sort of a heavenward focus or an end times focus has been on my heart uh, all all week as, as I've spoken at a couple of other places as well. And so I've titled this, For Heaven's Sake, What on Earth Are You Doing? And in Luke 19... We read about an occasion nearly 2,000 years ago when a group of believers were pondering the life to come. In fact, they were doing more than pondering it. They were, you might say, obsessed with it. And they were so obsessed with it that it was distracting them from the task at hand. And one of the things that those of us who believe very firmly in the literal return of our Lord and Savior to rescue us from this present evil age... Uh, sometimes fall into is the trap of becoming so uh, heavenly-minded that we're no earthly good, so focused on the end times that we forget that God has a task for us to do here and now. Now, that doesn't in any way detract from the blessed hope of our of our Lord. Uh, it doesn't detract in any way from getting up every day, looking up, being watchful, and wondering, could today be the day? It doesn't detract in any way, as we're going to talk about this morning, from the idea of uh, storing up treasures in heaven and living today in life of eternity, Um, but sometimes we become so fixated on all of the end times theology of Scripture that we forget about the task at hand. You know, one third of the Bible is prophecy, and half of that is yet to be fulfilled. Uh, So there's a lot in God's Word for us to study, and we should study it. Uh, You know, all Scripture is profitable. It gives us hope. It reminds us that we serve a faithful covenant-keeping God. It reminds us that if His prophecies related to the first advent of Christ came true, then His prophecies related to the second advent are going to come true. So there's certainly a benefit in studying prophecy, but not at the expense of doing what we're called to do. So 2,000 years ago, Jesus uh, is talking to His disciples, and they find themselves on the outskirts of Jerusalem, And it's the day before the triumphal entry. So we're talking about the very end of Christ's three and a half year earthly ministry. 
He's about to ride into Jerusalem in Passover week. He's about to confront uh, the money changers. He's about to rebuke the Jewish scribes and Pharisees. He's, he's about to have that famous sermon, the Olivet Discourse, on Wednesday night of Passion Week. Then, of course, the intimate moment Thursday night in the upper room when he institutes the Lord's Supper, begins to really explain to the disciples what's about to happen. He's betrayed later that night. Uh, arrested, tried, crucified, laid in a tomb early Friday morning to rise again Sunday, defeating death, hell, and the grave, and purchasing our salvation, and not only ours, but the whole world's, for those who will simply receive the gift of eternal life. So that's the context. But the day before we enter into that fateful final week of Christ's life, leading up to the Via Dolorosa when He's to head to Calvary, Luke gives us a very telling account of a conversation that Jesus had with his disciples. Listen uh, to what he says beginning in verse 11. Now as they heard these things, this is right on the heels of Zacchaeus' interaction with Jesus. As they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they, that's the disciples, thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. I want you to get the picture uh, for a moment. Um, what's fascinating about this is we don't always get through the mind of the Holy Spirit who inspired the writers of Scripture a glimpse into why Jesus tells some of the parables that He tells. But here, uh, Luke, under the inspiration of the Spirit, sets the stage and tells us why Jesus tells this parable that we're about to study. It's because the disciples were obsessed with the kingdom. They had heard all about it for three and a half years. Jesus' ministry began with the pronouncement the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Even before Jesus began His Galilean ministry, the John the Baptist had made the same pronouncement. Throughout his ministry, he, he teaches about the kingdom. Matter of fact, the first major discourse and the last major discourse, bookending Christ's three and a half year ministry, are all about the kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount and the Olivet Discourse. And he's explaining uh, what the kingdom looks like, what kind of righteousness is necessary to get into the kingdom. Remember that in the Sermon on the Mount? Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you'll never get into the kingdom. Uh, and uh, then, in fact, he goes on to say, it's not just a matter of being better than the Pharisees. You've got to be perfect. You've got to be perfect, Matthew 5.48. Uh, he begins to correct the false notion that a lot of the legalistic, unsaved Jews of the first century had come to believe, which is that if they can just be, you know, cross all their uh, T's and dot all their I's, somehow they'll be in, in first place in line to get into the kingdom. If they can pray the loud prayers or wear the right clothes or have the big phylacteries or clang their money into the, uh, to the offering plate, that somehow they're going to be, uh, God's going to say, good for you. And Jesus begins to correct that notion. Remember that in the Sermon on the Mount? He says, listen, you, you're patting yourselves on the back because you've never murdered, but let me, let me ask you, have you ever hated? <laughs> uh, you're so proud because you've never committed adultery, but let me ask you a question. Have you ever lusted? He says, it's not what you do that matters, it's what's in your heart. And the heart of man is desperately wicked. We're all born dead in our trespasses and sins, and we need a Savior. And the righteousness that heaven demands is faith righteousness, not self-righteousness. And that message is repeated throughout Jesus' three and a half year ministry as he juxtaposes the, the self-righteous piety of the Jewish leaders with the dirty, rotten, filthy Gentile sinners who in simple, humble faith come to Christ. 
And you see this again and again and again. And throughout that three and a half year ministry, Jesus has many intimate moments with his disciples in which he reminds them of this truth and begins to talk about the kingdom. He talked about who's going to be uh, the greatest in the kingdom. Remember the disciples wanted to know that? Who's going to sit where in the kingdom? Jesus says, you're going to sit on 12 thrones with me in the kingdom. One of the disciples' moms wanted to know if her sons could sit on either side of Christ in the kingdom. Uh, Peter was constantly asking, what are we going to get in the kingdom? Right? Um, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17, Jesus gives a picture of uh, what life will be like in the kingdom. Uh, there's no hint anywhere in Scripture, anywhere, Old or New Testament, that the kingdom will be anything other than a literal, physical, earthly kingdom in a literal brick-and-mortar temple with a literal throne and a literal King of Kings and Lord of Lords sitting on that throne, ruling, as Scripture says He will, with a rod of iron. And so, here they are, the end of three and a half years, they've heard this on and on and on, and they're on the outskirts of Jerusalem, it's Passover week, and the disciples think, aha, it's finally time, this is it. You can just imagine the private conversations going on among these disciples as they're talking to each other. Man, we're right here. We're going to go in and he's going to throw off the shackles of Rome and we're going to usher in this long-awaited Messianic kingdom. Can you believe we get to be the generation that sees the kingdom? Can you believe we're part of this? Isn't this going to be great? Well, Jesus knew that's what was in their minds. And so he tells them uh, this parable, the parable of the Minas. I like to call it the parable of delay. Because it's in this parable that Jesus reiterates, he's, he's touched on it before briefly, but they just didn't get it, that the kingdom is not going to come immediately, that it, there's going to be a delay. Now, they should have known this. The book of Daniel talks about a gap between the 69th and 70th weeks. There were hints of it throughout God's progressive revelation. But here he makes it explicitly clear. He says in verse 12, A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. That's Jesus. He's going to go away, far away, to get the kingdom. Then he's going to come back. So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, and said to them, Do business till I come. But his citizens, contrasting there with the servants, hated him. That's Israel. So he came unto his own, John tells us, but his own did not receive him. But as many as did receive him, but then he gave the right to become the children of God. So the citizens here represent Israel, who ultimately crucified him just a few days later. Instead of crowning him with a king's crown, they crowned him with thorns. Even though the next day on the triumphal entry, there would be a remnant that cried, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord at the triumphal entry in fulfillment of Psalm 118. Within just a few short days, those cries would switch to crucify him, crucify him. So his servants, he says, do business till I come, but his citizens hated him, said, we will not have this man to reign over us. So it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, that he called his servants to him who had given the money, and he said that he might know what each man had gained by trading. Then the first came and said, Master, your mina has earned ten. He said, well done, good and faithful servant. Uh, you were faithful in a little. I'll make you a master over ten cities. Perfectly in keeping with what Jesus had said repeatedly about life in the kingdom. See, one of the purposes of this present age is for the Lord to raise up some faithful servants who are going to be able to serve Him and rule and help rule in the kingdom. See, the kingdom uh, uh, eternally in, in the first thousand years is on the old earth. We call that the millennium and then you get into the eternal state. It's not just a bunch of Christians floating around on clouds singing Kumbaya. It's a literal earthly kingdom with boundaries and a, a ruler on the throne and things are going to be happening. And so he might say to Mike, I want you to take all of the western hemisphere and be in charge because you were such a godly guy. Your clock in heaven notwithstanding. Uh, he might say to me, I want you to take you know, post falls. 
for half of post balls. You know, that's where I want you to focus your attention in helping me rule and reign. The next one earned five minas. You remember the story. And he says, likewise, you will also be over faithful cities. He doesn't say well done, by the way, notable by its absence. But then the story hinges, as Jesus' parables so often do, on the final uh, servant, and this is just a representative, uh, this is a picture of what's going to be like at the Bema, as we shall see. Uh, but this last one did nothing. He said, oh, I, I tucked it away in a handkerchief. I feared you because you're an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit. You reap what you did not sow. And so he said to him, out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I didn't deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put the money in the bank? So that at my coming, I might have at least collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten minas. And then Jesus adds the parenthetical that was on everybody's heart and mind. Well, Master, why, why are you doing that? He's already got ten minas, you know. And he said to him, I tell you, do everyone who has will be given. And who does not have even what he has will be taken away. And then he deals with the, the citizens who didn't want him to reign. He says, bring them here and slay them before me. What in the world is going on in this parable? For heaven's sake, what on earth... Uh, are you doing? The overarching principle here is that we need to be patient. He wanted the disciples to be patient, stay focused, keep their perspective. They had a job to do. Yes, a better day is coming. Yes, the kingdom promises will be fulfilled precisely as the prophets said they would. But in the meantime, you've got a job to do. You need to stay focused. It's the same thing that Paul would later tell us, the church, when he says, set your mind on things above, not on things on earth. For your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then we will also appear with Him in glory. But notice in Colossians 3, Paul's emphasis here isn't, doesn't end with our focus being solely on the life to come. That focus on the life to come and the hope to come translates into action here and now. He goes on to say at the end of Colossians 3, Whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord. Not unto men, because from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. We are to live our lives each day to the fullest in light of the life to come. It's okay to be setting our minds on things above. Indeed, that's what Scripture tells us to do. But we must remember that those thoughts should translate into a job now. Just like those servants in Jesus' parable, we've been given one life to live. Sounds like a soap opera. But we've been given one life, one mina. We need to do something with it for the glory of the Lord. So ask yourself, for heaven's sake, what on earth are you doing? Let me give you five lessons from this parable of delay. The first one is this. Be patient. Be patient. Again, uh, Jesus says, they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Immediately. Now, I can remember one time years ago when the older kids were younger, we were all set to go on a family vacation, and we'd been talking about it uh, for several days, and as the day got closer, the kids got so excited, they packed their bags like three days early and put them by the front door. We were tripping over them and stumbling over them uh, for days. They were excited about the concept of the vacation, but they really didn't understand the time. They were so consumed with the fact that they were oblivious that there was still a few days left before we actually departed. It was their perspective that was the issue. And the disciples had a similar problem. They failed to recognize the delay that was coming, the church age. Uh, see, there's a, a twofold return of Christ. He's, he's going to come once for the church, and we're going to meet him in the air. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, John 14, 2 Thessalonians 2. But he's going to come a second time. 
with us riding with him on white horses, Revelation 19. And we're going to help him establish and inaugurate the long-awaited Messianic kingdom. The disciples were looking, as we often do, for immediate gratification. They wanted to experience that kingdom right now. In fact, um, uh, the disciples were so obsessed... They were obsessed with it right up till the the, uh, ascension. So again, Jesus says, it's going to be a far country. I'm going to return. Um, But he says, be patient. Wait. It's not going to happen immediately. Now we we talked about the disciples' obsession with the kingdom all throughout his earthly ministry. Uh, As these days unfold immediately following this parable, uh, the disciples still never really got it. In fact, it wasn't until after the crucifixion and resurrection that they began to connect all the dots. They should have. Should have connected them, but they didn't. And they abandoned Christ even uh, there at the cross. But afterwards, as He appeared for 40 days to them and they began to connect the dots, they, they started to see that, that the, cross, the, the cross must come before the crown, that suffering has to come first so that He can pay the price as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So I have no doubt that they began to see it. But I do get a chuckle when I read what happened uh, 40 days later on the Mount of Ascension in Acts chapter 1. You get this conversation. The disciples are with the Lord. And basically they say, Lord, will you at this time restore your kingdom to Israel? Now paraphrasing that, and I can't prove this from Scripture, but you you almost get the the sense that the disciples' conversation with the Lord in this moment went something like this. Lord, we, we totally understand this whole cross, suffering, atonement, resurrection, justification, this Lamb of God thing. We totally get it. And, uh, and by the way, thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for saving us from our sins. And, and we're sorry that we weren't really with you there to the bitter end. But we get it now, and thank you for that. But uh, Lord, now, if you don't mind, can we get back to more pressing matters? Back to this subject of the kingdom. Is it now time? Are you now going to restore the kingdom? And this would have been the perfect time for him to dispel the notion of a literal earthly kingdom if indeed it wasn't he could have said nope this is it enjoy look around you this is the kingdom it's spiritual it's figurative it's metaphorical hope you have a great time I'm off to heaven see you later he didn't do that in fact he affirmed in his answer uh, their literal understanding of the kingdom when he said look it's not for you to know the times or the seasons the word times there is chronos it means the length or duration of time and the word seasons is the word kairos in Greek it means the exact time Uh, so he says look it's going to come. But you don't worry about that. You have a job to do. Don't you remember what I told you? Right before Passion Week, in that parable of the Mimas, I said, you've got a job to do. Be busy. Be busy until I come. Uh, so so here's the, the end times chart. Um, and uh, we don't have time to go through all of this, but you can sort of understand here that here's the rapture that puts an end to the church age, followed by the tribulation period, and then the, tri- the second coming of Christ when we come back with Him to establish uh, the kingdom. So the disciples were fixated over here on the kingdom. That's what the Old Testament prophets had talked about. That's what Jesus had talked about. Boy, they wanted that kingdom. But what he was trying to say is they should have been focused on the cross initially. And now they should have been focused on all of the things that are going to take place prior to his return. God has a lot of things to do. uh, Namely, the church age, 
Jew and Gentile in one body, what Paul calls a mystery, something previously undisclosed that is now being disclosed, the age in which we live as a part of the body of Christ, serving and ruling and, and uh, serving and preparing to help rule and reign in the kingdom. And Jesus says, be patient. And that's hard to do. Uh, but again and again, the New Testament writers remind us of this idea of eagerly waiting uh, for that day, the redemption of our body. And we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. That's what hope's all about. See, if, if Paul says, if in this life only we have hope, we're of all men most pitiable. Why? Because we can see it. This is what you see is what you get. But it's the very fact that we walk by faith and not by sight and that we are hoping and expecting confidently the promises of God to come true, that we can eagerly wait for it with perseverance. So, uh, the disciples needed to focus on this church age. I love this quote by Tozer. He says, We hear a great deal about go ye, but not much about tarry ye. We preach about urgency, but not about patience. Be patience. This parable teaches us we need to be patient. Secondly, as we've said, it needs, we need to be busy. We need to be busy. Have you ever noticed that it's a lot easier to be patient when you're busy? <laughs> You know, when you're looking forward to something, man, I can't wait for that. If you just sit around waiting, you just begin to get obsessed with it. But if you just kind of go about your business, find something to occupy your time, before you know, time goes by and then it's here. And I think Jesus knew that. Busyness is defined as the state of being or appearing to be actively engaged in activity. Uh, the question, of course, is what are we busy doing? But Jesus told the, the, the disciples in this parable, do business until I come. Paul would later say, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. There's a great line from Macbeth, as Macbeth learns that the queen is dead, in which he says, Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. Life is a tale told by an idiot, full of, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. The question for us is, what does all of our sound and fury signify? What are we busy doing? Does our sound and fury actually produce something of value? There's a difference between the world's busyness and those of us who know the Lord being truly busy and faithful to the stewardship that we've been given. Are we talking about the Lord with others? Are we sharing the gospel clearly and confidently with others? Are we serving Him? Are we being a light in this pagan world? Or are we blending right in so that no one could tell a difference between us and a child of God? For heaven's sake, what on earth are we doing? Well, then the third thing that he says here is be aware. Verse 14. Be aware. We need to recognize that not everyone's going to receive the kingdom messages. Remember, the kingdom message. Remember, the, the Jews represented by the citizens here in verse 14 uh, didn't want Christ to rule over them. So we will not have this man to rule over us. You know, there are many enemies of the cross then and now. Not everyone's going to believe the gospel. That doesn't mean we, we shouldn't continue to preach it. It's the gospel that's the power of God to salvation. But we need to recognize that in, in this world we will have tribulation. That in this world not everybody thinks like we do. Not everybody views life through the lens of biblical truth. And we need to recognize, Jesus said, if you, all who desire, or Paul said, all who desire to live godly, 2 Timothy 2.12, will suffer persecution. And I think this is an important reality from this parable to remember that... Uh, it is not going to be easy. 
And we need to keep that in mind. And then we see number four, be ready. And this is the real essence of the parable, the bulk of the parable. It's that moment when the eastern sky splits, the, the Lord comes back, and we're caught up to meet the Lord in the air. We see Him face to face, and we experience that time of accountability. In the parable, He says, when He returned, He, having received the kingdom, He called everyone to Him that He might know how much every man had gained by trading. There's an accountability moment. Uh, this is not an, a, a time to determine whether you get into heaven. You know when it's determined when you'll get into heaven? The moment of faith. The Bible makes it very clear. Whoever has believed in Jesus has passed from death to life and shall never come into judgment. Jesus said, I give you eternal life. John 10 to 28, you shall never perish. The moment you trust Christ, you become a child of God. You're born from above, Jesus told Nicodemus. Uh, there's 160 passages in the New Testament alone, and we have a, a book that deals with all of them, uh, in which we are promised if we have trusted Christ, we have been saved. Our spiritual DNA changes in that moment. We never face judgment. But you better believe there's going to be a moment when, as we enter into the kingdom, we're going to be accountable. The Lord wants to know this isn't for punishment, this isn't a punitive moment, it's a reward or lack of reward. That's what the judgment seat is all about. If, uh, if I reward one of my children by giving them $10 for a job well done as they shoveled the rock, and I reward another one by giving them $5, I'm not punishing one. They're just receiving rewards for their faithfulness. And by the way, the Bible is very clear that in heaven there's no sin, there's no jealousy, there's no covetousness, there's not like we're going to be comparing, oh, you got this and you got this, right? We're all going to have a, a wonderful experience, utopian experience of joy when time shall be no more and sin shall be no more. But the Lord is going to reward us. And that's, a, that's one of many motivators. not the only motivator. But again and again, every New Testament writer talks about rewards and the fact that we need to recognize uh, those rewards and, and serve because of it. Colossians 3, whatever you do, do heartily to the Lord so that you'll receive the reward. But we need to be ready. The king is coming back. We actually need to be ready for two reasons. First of all, not only do we not know when the Lord's going to return... But even if the Lord carries His coming, we don't know when our time may come. Hebrews says in 9.27, it's appointed unto men once to die. James says, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. Because your life is just a vapor. Uh, again, First Thessalonians 4 talks about sorrowing as those who have no hope. We don't have to sorrow when we lose a loved one who knows the Lord because we know we're going to see them again. Um, and we know that He's going to bring with Him when He comes back those who've already died that are with Him. But the absent from the body is to be present uh, with the Lord. He goes on to say, We who are alive and remain um, until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God. Then the dead in Christ will rise first. This is the event called the rapture. Right here. It's the next great prophetic event to which the world looks forward. And we don't know when that's going to happen. That's why we need to be ready. It could happen today. Would that be okay with everybody if it happened today? Hallelujah, right? I'd be, I would love that. Um, but when it does, we need to be ready. 
for when we are caught up. The word caught up is the Greek word harpazo. It means to snatch or take away. It's used 13 times in the New Testament. It's actually translated rapture in Jerome's Latin translation of the Bible 400 years after the Greek was written. It also means to rescue from threatening danger. And that's why the rapture is comforting. And that's why every passage on the rapture in the New Testament ends with a comforting exhortation. It's comforting to know that someday we're going to experience that glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior and be caught up to meet Him in the air. But are you ready? Are you ready? The Bible is clear that those the only, only way to make things right with the Lord is to receive the free gift of eternal life paid for by the blood of Christ. If we trust in Him. Again, Jesus said, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in Him who sent me as everlasting life shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. From death to life. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Uh, Jesus said, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever believes in me has everlasting life. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus told Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you can't see that kingdom. Are you ready? Are you ready? Has there been a time in your life when you've trusted in Christ and Him alone for salvation? And then finally, be in awe. Be in awe. The last part of this passage is always troubling because it's one of those glimpses in Scripture that we get of the wrath of Almighty God. You know, we, we have created in this postmodern age a softer, kinder, gentler God. <laughs> Secularism has done that. And we tend to ignore the justice of God. Now, as believers, we need not fear the wrath of God because we've, we, we have escaped the wrath of God. We've experienced the propitiation, 1 John 2, 2, through the blood of Christ, that the wrath of God has been satisfied. But because God is a holy, just God, His word must be true. And uh, there are going to be those who, because they've never received the free gift of eternal life, will face that wrath. See, nobody can ever say, you know, can ever shake their fist at heaven and say it's God's fault they end up in hell. You ever think about that? I mean, think about it. Go back to the Garden of Eden. First of all, before sin ever even entered the world, God warned us. God loved His creation, the pinnacle of creation, the, you know, the apple of His eye, the ones who were created in His image, loved us so much that He warned us about one tree. If you eat of that tree, look out, you're going to die. That's how much he loves. It's like a good parent protecting his creation. But what did we do? He gave us free will, because we're not robots, and we marched right over and took a great big bite. Now, in that moment, God could have, theoretically, and this is, I think, what some people think, whether they admit it or not, God could have said, oh, never mind, I was just kidding. Forget it, no big deal, that's all right, everybody makes mistakes. I was just kidding about that death thing. But then God would be proven to be a liar, unfaithful and fickle and untrustworthy. So I don't know about you, but I'm glad we have a God who's a God of His Word. But God also is not just just and holy and righteous, He's gracious and merciful. So immediately He set in plan a motion to provide the remedy to the problem we created. He paid a debt he didn't know because we owed a debt we could never pay. The wages of sin is death. But God loved us. He didn't want us to die. So he's paid the penalty for the sins of the whole world. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, left the realm of eternity, came to earth, put on flesh, time, space, and matter, and he said, I'm going to be the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. He's the only one that could do it, by the way. I can't pay for your sins and you can't pay for mine. You know why? Because there's not room on our shoulders. We've got enough sin to deal with. It had to be a perfect, unblemished Lamb of God. And the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone is born in sin. 
Every single person. Sin, Romans 5.12 says, Wherefore by one man Adam sinned into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. I was present when each one of our six children was born, and every time I held them seconds after they were born, looked down at this precious newborn child and thought, Here is a little sinner. And you know what? I'm not a prophet, but that's proven to be true. Um, Why? Because the Bible says so. So He paid the sins for the whole world, and He offers freely to all the gift of eternal life. Whosoever will, let him come drink freely of the water of life. That's the way the Bible ends in Revelation. It's a free gift. He's not going to force it on you. Forced love is no love at all. But He makes it available to anyone. And anybody who doesn't receive the free gift offer based on the blood of Christ will have to pay their own penalty someday. And we need to be in awe of that. And that's what we find a sort of a reference here to the great, great white throne when he says, Bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Matthew 25 paints that picture as well when he says to the goats, and this is at the second coming, not the great white throne, but at the second coming, Depart from me into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Well, ask yourself maybe, are are, are your bags packed? Are you standing by the door, tapping your foot, waiting for the return of the Lord? That's understandable. I get that way too. I love the end times and love to think about it. But then, if so, this message of this parable is for you. All of us love and long for our Lord's return. Paul said that at the end of his life, that there's a special reward because he's longed for it. But it doesn't negate our responsibilities to be busy and Till he comes. So here's the challenge I'll leave you with. Number one, live every day in light of eternity. Number two, never forget that a better day is coming. And that's that's so comforting. When I see all the inequities and injustices of life, when I see the heartache, the tragedies, and everybody in this room has a story to tell. Everybody in this room has faced unspeakable difficulties and maybe things you've never even told anybody. But a better day is coming. That's what the hope of the resurrection is about. It's about new life. That's what the hope of God's plan of the ages is about. It's about a new heavens and a new earth. And we look forward to that. But in the meantime, make your life here and now count then and there by storing up treasures and having doing things of eternal and redeeming value. That's the great equalizer in the Christian life. See, sadly, most Christians are so fixated on works and performance that they live their life with false motivations of guilt to try to prove to God and others that they're really saved. Or worse yet, actually trying to become saved by their works. But at Not By Works Ministries, we are passionate about the purity and accuracy of the gospel message. That it's not by works of righteousness which we've done, but according to His mercy He saved us. The Bible never challenges us to be motivated in the Christian life to somehow prove to God that we're saved. You know, doubting your salvation is like calling God a liar. It's like shaking your fist at heaven and saying, Lord, I know you said you gave me eternal life when I trusted in you, but I don't really think you meant it. No, He wants us to live like a child of the King, recognize our identity in in, in Him and and, in who we are in Him, and live like it. And uh, the struggle of the flesh is a a strong struggle, and the believers cater to the flesh. They're going to look like unbelievers sometimes. But in the meantime... Uh, God's grace is sufficient. We pray that His discipline would be gentle and that the Holy Spirit's convicting work would continually nudge us back into walking by faith and not by sight.